Hey guys, this week's podcast is brought to you by the fastest growing and most active app for hunters, anglers, and outdoor enthusiasts. Of course, I'm talking about Go Wild. Thousands of people are joining weekly. So if you're tired of the hate on social media that hunters and outdoor enthusiasts experience at the hands of anti-hunters, tree huggers, and animal rights activists, then you need to join Go Wild. In addition to sharing your hunting and fishing experiences, Go Wild is a great place to share recipes, ask questions, and meet other awesome people that are passionate about the outdoors. Plus, Go Wild gives money back to conservation groups and organizations like Raise Them Outdoors, which is helping teach kids to hunt and fish. They do weekly big-time giveaways, including $500 coolers, $150 in fishing tackle, Vortex gear, hammocks, broadheads, fly rods, and tons of other great stuff. It's free, and it's available on both Android and iPhones. Check it out. It's Go Wild, and I want to invite you to be a part of this awesome and growing community. Gas was 50 cents a gallon, and they put it in for you. And they pump your tires and check your oil, and wash your windows too. And we shine those cars as bright as bright, but we go park underneath that light. Stare out at the prairie sky, there was nothing else to do. Good morning, good morning, good morning, sweet, beautiful Texas and beyond. That's the great Fred Eagle Smith kicking things off for us on the Lone Star Outdoors Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Cable Smith here with you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. It is a pleasure to be talking, hunting, fishing, the great outdoors, and all that implies with you fine folks today. So thanks for being here. I do appreciate each and every one of you. Thanks also to our presenting sponsors, Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris. Um, man, it's a great time of the year. Kind of a, a slow time, right? So cool things to do, you know, go to Montana, hunt black bear, go to South Africa, for example, or just head out to the uh, local lake and get after those post-spawn crappie. Or, hey, maybe you're heading down to the coast uh, to chase trout and redfish like I did last week, uh, which was not all it was cracked up to be. This was a <laughs> family vacation down to Galveston, and, man, the bite was tough, really tough. We caught hardhead after hardhead. They'd had a southwest wind blowing 25 the day before and uh, really just shut the bite down on the day that we chose to go out. And we caught three undersized redfish and a trout, and I caught a baby bonnet head shark so that's the way it goes though sometime still uh better to be out on the water than sitting at home that's for sure can't complain about that and got to uh spend time with my dad and brothers and my youngest brother who uh, i've never really talked about much on the show because we're very different um he's a bona fide millennial his name's chris and uh that's the one time a year that he actually goes fishing is when we go out and, but he was true to himself. I mean, no, he didn't bait one hook or uh, touch one of the hard heads that he ended up catching. Uh, we had to do that for him. So God bless you millennials out there, and God bless him for at least trying to get out there. And, and uh, Although I think he just does it to spend time with, with uh, his dad and his other brothers. So anyway, we like to give him a bunch of crap, and uh, I think he deserves it. But maybe there's a one of those in your family maybe there's a vegan i mean maybe there's a vegan in your family how awful would that be uh if there is try to talk some sense into them because veganism the more i research it the more that i come into contact 
with hate from social media. It truly is a disease. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But that is a conversation for another day. Here's what's on the docket for today. Uh, we've got two great guests lined up for you. We're going to visit with Marco De Jesus. He is a district biologist for Texas Parks and Wildlife. And we're going to discuss fisheries management, specifically aquatic vegetation and the role of introduced or invasive grass carp. Uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife is one of gosh, over 40 wildlife agencies now in the country that have introduced triploid grass carp into the waterways or water bodies in an attempt to help control vegetation. Most of the time, it's hydrilla. Uh, and we're going to dive into that topic. It's very interesting. I, I had no idea how they make a triploid grass carp or really even what that meant biologically before this interview, uh, but one of our listeners requested that we cover this topic, and it, it actually is very fascinating. So we're going to get into all of that with uh, Marco. Then we'll spend a couple segments talking public land, uh, black bear hunting up in Montana with my friend Luke Sterling. I just got back from Montana, and uh, we'll recap our hunt and then get into some public land hunting ethics because a couple dudes really crossed the line uh, on our hunt and affected our hunt in a, in a very negative way, uh, which just with the amount of land that's available, especially in a place like Montana, I was just shocked. Uh, but it does happen, and uh, we'll talk about some of the do's and don'ts of public land hunting. That's what's on the docket for today. Going to be a good one, I guarantee you that. Uh, let's go ahead and, and do a quick giveaway. I've got a, uh, what are we going to do today? Oh, yeah, I've got a StealthCam DS4K. That's a retail value, I think, 299 bucks. As far as photo and video quality, it is the only 4K camera out there. I don't know, unless someone's tried to knock it off by now. But uh, all you need to do is email the word stealth, that's stealth, to LoneStarOutdoorsShow at gmail.com, and uh, we'll get you entered into this week's drawing. Congrats to Thomas Lane of Weatherford, Texas, by the way. He won last week's giveaway. Uh, so, folks, keep winning each and every week. A lot of y'all are emailing in, and I appreciate that. And uh, we'll see who wins the Stealth Cam this week. Um, also, don't forget to send in your June photo of the month entry sponsored by Vortex Optics. We've got a Strike Eagle scope up for grabs this month. You can email those to Lone Star Outdoors Show at gmail.com, or you can post them on our Facebook page or use the LSOS photo contest hashtag on Instagram. We'll get you entered for the Vortex scope. Uh, also, our 12 monthly winners from 2018 will square off at the end of the year for a chance to hunt trophy access deer or black buck with me out at Coons Canyon Ranch in Rock Springs, Texas. Um, let's do this. Let's knock out a quick break, come back, and get into that rough fish that what a lot of folks want to call a trash fish. That triploid grass carp or Asian carp that is well, having a positive effect in many of our fisheries. We discuss next with Texas Parks and Wildlife's Marco De Jesus. You're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show.
Have you had the frustration of trying to mount your game camera to a T-post with zip ties or bailing wire, but the first time you check it, find it pointing at the ground? I have. My name is Art Greep with Gunny Art Products. I'm the inventor of Teammate, the T-post game camera mount. Teammate is a rugged steel bracket. Just attach your camera to it, slip it over a T-post, and latch it in place. Teammate will end your zip tie and bailing wire frustration. Order yours today at tpostmount.com. That's tpostmount.com. Cable here, and we all know that the North Texas weather plays for keeps. That's why you should call my childhood baseball buddy, Phil, with Tech City Roofing. Tech City is a one-stop shop for your roofing needs, offering a 10-year transferable warranty. They don't require money up front or a down payment. They deal directly with your insurance company. Tech City is insured and has an A-plus rating with the BBB. Call Phil Marler at 940-600-8221 for a free inspection, or email him at phil at techcityroofing.com. That's my lifelong bud, Phil with Tech City Roofing at 940-600-8221. In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at bobcatadvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of Dallas and Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, and now McKinney. Visit BobcatofDallas.com or call 469-586-0000. Hey, y'all. Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Hey guys, Cable here, and I need to tell you about the Go Wild app. If you've experienced any kind of hatred on social media from anti-hunters, from tree huggers, and the like, then check out the growing Go Wild community. It's free. It's available for both iPhones and Android. It's a great place to trade hunting and fishing stories, recipes, and share some of those bragging board moments of your outdoor successes. Check it out. It's the Go Wild app, available for both iPhones and Androids. Out down by the creek where the water goes slow, the greenback heron and the moccasin know. All things come to him who waits, yet he is lost to hesitate. Life and death just dancing around in a mud. Cable Smith welcoming everybody back the to the Lone Star Outdoors Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Thank you for being here, and thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris as well, our longtime presenting sponsors. We've got some interesting fisheries management stuff to get into concerning triploid grass carp which we will dive into momentarily. Talk some trash fish today. <laughs> what do you say? Uh, but before we do that, this segment of the presentation is proudly brought to you by Pulsar Night Vision and Thermal Imaging Technology. I've got the Pulsar Trail XP50 on my AR. It is a game changer when it comes to hunting hogs, coyotes, bobcats, any kind of varmint under the cover of darkness. Not only does it feature the latest and greatest thermal imaging technology. It also has an internal recording device, which is convenient, so you can film your hunt, and then you just plug it into your computer and download your footage. 
It's that easy. It's the Pulsar Trail Series. You can find it at PulsarNV.com, and you'll save 20% if you tell them that Cable sent you. All right, uh, well, let's go ahead and bring on our first guest. He joins us now from the San Marcos area of the Texas Hill Country. He is a longtime employee of Texas Parks and Wildlife's Inland Fisheries Division. It's my pleasure to welcome District Biologist Marco De Jesus back to the show. Great, great. Yes, good talking to you again. Absolutely. So first of all, why don't you tell our listeners or folks who aren't familiar with you what your role is as as an inland fisheries district biologist uh, with Texas Parks and Wildlife? Well, my role as a district biologist for inland fisheries is really to manage fishing, uh, fisheries opportunities for for the general public and and public waters of central Texas. We're based out of San Marcos, and uh, we kind of cover 16 counties around Austin. So um, my job is really to to work with... uh, water management authorities and the general public to to ensure we have uh, the best fishing opportunities available in the area through through fisheries management science. Right on. Okay. Well, and, and that's what I want to discuss today, obviously, is water body management, because it's obvious that we need aquatic vegetation in our water sources for a variety of reasons. But ultimately, what is the role of aquatic vegetation at its core well, aquatic vegetation is uh, is essential to to, to freshwater systems. Um, it just it just provides part of a, the ecological habitat for 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 many organisms to thrive, and it also just like trees out here, they you know they they clean the water. Trees clean the air out here. You know, we talk about cutting trees down, and and, and the water plants actually, you know, they clean the water. They filter uh, nutrients. They keep mm-hmm. the water clean. And um, they also provide habitat for for organisms that that live in the water. So, like essentially, the start of the food chain. Uh, well, the start of the food chain, uh, close to it, yeah, because the sun is always the the start sure. of the food chain, the plankton and all that. But yes, it is a primary uh, primary part of the food chain. For yeah, sure. yeah. And we and you know in in reservoirs, there's different zones and stuff um, where you know aquatic vegetation can't survive because there's not enough sunlight. Uh, that's the you know bottom of yes. the lake essentially. Yes. Um, yeah. So yeah. So aquatic vegetation actually requires a certain set of uh, of uh, conditions to thrive. You know, I mean, it's got to there's water temperature, sunlight for sure. You know, water water movement has a big role in it. So if you're in a part of a reservoir, it's more of a river like part, and you got high flows, flows could actually scour vegetation out. So you got to have the right conditions to maintain vegetation. Right. Well, and, and you know, it's like we want some vegetation, but we don't want what, name the the water body is irrelevant, but we don't want it to become overgrown. And what, that's you know, across the board, whether you're an angler, a boater, or swimmer, or just enjoying the view, too much vegetation is a bad thing. Um, and you know, you just go. I could just say the the golf course that I fish at. I'm not. A, I don't belong to the golf course. I have to sneak on to fish there. Um, but uh, you know, there's times of the year where it just becomes completely overgrown. You can't even fish there, and it it looks awful. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, plants are going to grow based on the conditions, like I said. So the conditions allow them to grow to that kind of, uh, you know, uh, level to where it's topped out and it's spread out throughout the whole water. Um, it could cause problems, not necessarily, you know. I mean, it's, it's, it's like I said, they're cleaning out and, and the water and the nutrients that are in there. 
However, if you have other uses for that water body that includes things like flood control, um, uh, power generation through the hydroelectric dams, mm-hmm. or you have a swimming and recreational component, fishing, you know, having too much vegetation could be detrimental. But right. it all depends on the water management authority, whoever's managing the water, what they want for that water body. And there are several priorities that are set up, and they usually try to stick to, 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 to that. Mm-hmm. Our job in Parks and Wildlife knowing that plants are important to the ecosystem is try to get a balance. That's really hard to do at times because you know, when you're dealing with biological organisms, you know you just can't predict how they're going to react to certain treatments or whatever. You could just kind of imagine what's going to happen and try to prevent it. But um, a lot of times we, we, we look at vegetation control as a, you know, we're trying to try to meet our priorities, but but it's a biological system. You know, it's really hard to keep a balance. And when I say balance, I mean having vegetation in the system, however, not to a point where it impedes the priorities of the management. Right. Well, and ultimately the management is looking at it from, and let's just be honest, a dollar bill standpoint, uh, yeah. angling, recreating, boating, swimming, all that stuff brings mm-hmm. money to that, that reservoir, but ultimately the, the community that supports that reservoir. And uh, so they're looking at it from that standpoint. And, and obviously, like you said, too much vegetation starts to impede those uh, things that support that water body. Once you're working with that management authority, uh, they come to you and say, hey, this is our goal. And then do you provide insight as far as, well, okay, we need to get some of this vegetation out, so we're going to use a mix of chemicals and maybe uh, grass carp? Okay. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So what in fisheries, you know, there's been a lot of science involved in, 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 in looking at what what is a good amount of vegetation in a system. And it varies from system to system. However, we think anywhere between, you know, 20 and 40 percent vegetation coverage within the, a total acreage of the water body is is optimal for for uh, producing bass fisheries, okay? Mm-hmm. For example, sunfish, bass communities. So we we monitor these waters to see what kind of per coverage there is overall and get, kind of gauge where we want to be. However, you know, different conditions will make that change year after year. So uh, what happens is um, sometimes you get situations where even though um, you, you either exceed that or or you get you're within the right range but it's all in the wrong area of the lake where there might be issues with access or management of whatever and then our role is to work with the water management authority to let them know um how first of all educate them on the importance of vegetation so they don't go into eradication uh protocols but at the same time trying to figure out ways to control the the issue with whatever uh, tools available, whether it's grass carp or or uh, uh, chemicals or mechanical removal, you know, whatever is best suited for them, we will try to try to work out a plan. But bottom line, what we need to do is conserve the habitat for the fish, and that's where we try to help them out to make sure there's a balance. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, let's talk about the the triploid grass carp. It's uh, a species that you know everyone knows what a grass carp is, and 
Okay. Most people know that it's not native to the United States. Here's just a couple quick hits on on this species. Largest production of any freshwater fish in the world, which seems odd, like from a from a farming standpoint, because uh-huh. Americans don't look at a carp and say, "Hey, I want to eat that." You know, I mean, they're very bony, and by and large, we catch them and let them go or consider them yeah. a rough fish. But uh-huh. somewhere <laughs> they're producing five million tons of farmed grass carp annually, so, you know, it's very popular in Asia, which is where it originated. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So that's one thing. And then also doing a little research, I understand that it was brought to Alabama and Arkansas from Taiwan and Malaysia back in the early 60s. And then in 1966 was the first release we saw, and it was actually, from what I read, an accidental release or escape near Stuttgart, Arkansas. But all it took was 10 years from that standpoint, so it must have worked. It must have been effective because by the 70s, it had been introduced to 40 states, and since then, I think up to today, has been documented in 45 of the 50 states. So obviously, uh, it's considered a, a valuable management tool, and uh, and I'll let you talk a little bit more about it, but uh, there's just some a little background on this species. Yeah, yeah, it is. They are very, very... Um... Uh, what do you call it? They are efficient at what they do. The reason they're brought in is because of hydrilla mainly. Hydrilla is a species that's in, that's been introduced out here in the United States, but it's originally from from the same areas where the grass carp live, Southeast Asia. Imagine that. So that's their that's their main food source. So um, they could live on 100% hydrilla year-round over there. Um, so when we have hydrilla issues, as you know, hydrilla could could actually become resistant to to chemicals and, and over time cause problems that it's really too expensive to fix. Mm-hmm. In other words, the chemicals are expensive. So the grass carp option exists for that purpose. And for those who want a long-term control without having to buy chemicals year after year after year because hydrilla will have ways to come back. Yeah. That's the thing that really is really Well, think hard. about how many, you know, tons of yeah. chemicals you'd have to dump into a lake just to be effective. I mean, yeah, it's got to be extremely expensive. Yeah, when you got situations where you have hundreds and hundreds of acres of, of, of hydrilla or whatever vegetation you're trying to control, chemical could be, you know, not only expensive, but it's, it may be a short-term fix. Yeah. And sometimes it's kind of more lucrative to work with a sterile fish that's going to do that work for you. However, when you when you the the backside of the the grass carp is, if you know, you once they're in, they're in, and uh, they're going to work, and they're going to work, and they're going to work. And if if you overdo it, you might go beyond your goals where you extirpate basically everything that's in the water. And then you cause another issue, which is what we talked about initially, is water quality and, and the way the water looks. And, the, you know, there's an impact to the other fish So because the habitats are gone. So those, those that's the catch-22. Yeah. Well, so, and then, I mean, I don't know, what what is the recourse at that point when you have too many grass carp? Do they start feeding on other things uh, if they've, done a good job on the hydrilla, do they start affecting the rest of the... Well, they'll start feeding on other plants. I mean, grass farp have been studied intensively, and people have looked at, you know, what preferences they have when it comes to types of plants they eat, and there's stuff that they barely like to touch if they they didn't have to, and then there's stuff that they love. So, so, I mean, you're an organism, you're hungry, you're trying to survive, you will start picking up things like detritus and 
leaves that fall off the trees. Uh, as for fish, um, they don't have the digestive system to digest meat. Yeah. They just have a long gut. So we've looked at stomach analysis uh, from fish from Lake Austin, for example, and we looked at many, many fish, and they were either empty stomach, uh, empty guts or they were full of detritus, which is all the leaf litter and stuff that goes to the bottom of the lake. Well, Marco, I think we've discussed in detail why these carp were initially introduced and why they're still being stocked into water bodies today. Let's do this, though. Let's take a break, come back, and get into the permitting process. Uh, also, are there carp here in Texas that are reproducing naturally that y'all aren't stocking? Where do they come from? And then I also want to hit on the impact of bow fishermen, um, what they're doing to the grass carp species, which I don't know uh, from your standpoint if if you're in favor or against it. I personally love shooting carp with a bow. It's, it's awesome. Uh, but uh, it might be kind of counterproductive for a situation where, you know, like you guys are stocking in a reservoir. So uh, let's take a break, come back, and get into all of that. Sound good? Let's do it. We're good. Awesome. Awesome. All right, and that segment brought to you by Iota Outdoors and the Crux Rifle Stock. It's backcountry-friendly, weighs 27 ounces. It's what I have on my 7 mag. If you like to spot and stock, or if you do a lot of backpack-style hunting, then this is the rifle stock for you, and you can find it at iotaoutdoors.com. We'll be right back with more from Inland Fisheries District Biologist Marco De Jesus right here on the Lone Star Outdoors Show. Hey y'all, Cable here for Three Curl Outfitters, and whether you want to bow hunt hogs or get after them with thermal imaging and night vision, under the cover of darkness, Three Curl has you covered. They've got the latest and greatest thermal imaging and night vision technology. They hunt unlimited, I mean just thousands upon thousands of acres of ag fields, or if you're a bow hunter and you want to sit in a stand and wait for the hog to come to you, uh, they can do that as well. Check it out, 3curl.com to book your next hog hunt. Hi, I'm Craig Boddington. I'd like to invite you to become a member of Dallas Safari Club, one of the world's leading hunting and conservation organizations. As a member, you'll receive Game Trails magazine, a monthly newsletter, and invitations to our monthly meetings and special activities. Join Dallas Safari Club, an international organization based in Dallas, supporting hunting and conservation worldwide. For more information, call 800-9-GO-HUNT or visit our website at www.biggame.org. Howdy folks, I'm Lee Hoffpair for Hoffpair's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffpair's once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. Please keep buying your Polaris products from us. Send us your friends, your neighbors, all your hunting buddies, and I promise we'll keep giving the best deals on a brand new Polaris in all of Texas. Whether you're looking for a Polaris for work or play, whether you need a regular Ranger or maybe a Ranger Crew, an RZR, they've got an all-new Ace that you need to come test drive. We've also got four-wheelers from a youth model all the way up to the all-new Sportsman 1000. For your Polaris headquarters, Hoff Powers Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas is who you need to see all or get on the web and contact today. You can check us out at hpolaris.com. That's H's in Hoff Power, polaris.com. Or you can come see us at Highway 84 West in Gulfway, Texas. And folks, Hoff Powers has been in Central Texas for over 50 years now, and we couldn't have stuck around this long if we were steering you wrong. 
Hi, I'm Greg Hackney, 2014 Bassmaster Angler of the Year, and you're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Double barrel shotgun, watching my dog run along an old fence road. We're setting the drag for the largemouth bass bend in my fishing pole. On the water and in the woods, the one of my favorites from Chuck Allen Floyd bringing us back. Right here on the Lone Star Outdoors Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club, Cable Smith, riding shotgun with you today. Thank you so much for being here as we are talking freshwater fishery management, specifically the use of triploid grass carp, a species that was introduced into the United States back in the mid-60s. And by the mid-70s, 40 states had introduced grass carp into their waterways or reservoirs in an attempt to control vegetation. Uh, a lot of times hydrilla, which is also an invasive species. Um, and so we're discussing this phenomenon here today. But before we jump back into it with biologist Marco de Jesus of Texas Parks and Wildlife, this segment is brought to you by Dallas Safari Club, the worldwide leader in big game conservation, I'd personally like to invite you to get plugged in with this great group of folks who are passionate about conservation, education, and hunters' rights. For more information, do yourself a favor and check us out at biggame.org. We'd love to have you. All right, uh, let's get back into it here with Marco, who was nice enough to stick around through the break. And, you know, we discussed a little bit about the background of, of how this species made its way to North America, uh, Marco. But one thing I want to hit on is the word triploid, which means sterile. Uh, I'm fascinated to know how you guys make sure that the fish you're stocking are indeed sterile because obviously that's going to give you a, a level of control that you wouldn't have if these fish were able to breed successfully. No, they're not a cross. What, they, what happens is it, this is not something we control. This is something that's controlled by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, Facilities that produce that produce these fish, they have a way to treat the eggs before uh, during a developmental part of their their uh, you know of the of the egg stage where where there's a temperature shock applied or a pressure shock applied at a certain timing in the eggs, which keeps the uh, uh, the chromosomes from separating, so it, it retains an extra set of chromosomes, making it a triploid. Wow. From there on, the, the the embryo develops with three sets of chromosomes, and that makes them sterile. Yeah. So what happens is once those fish are produced, there's a testing protocol that's supposed to be really strict that's overseen by the feds. And um, if there's a, they find a fish that didn't make it, the whole batch is thrown away. So, oh, wow. So okay. they, they only batches that are certified sterile through their protocols – are available for growth and 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 they sell them. The producers yeah. sell them. So we get we get our our fish, or we say we anybody who purchases fish will get fish from a source. At least in Texas, they have to be certified triploid, barrel. Uh -huh. Fascinating. See, so I didn't I didn't realize that. And obviously, take the golf course for example. Name the any golf yeah. course. You see carp in there. Uh -huh. For yep. the most part, they probably weren't put there they probably just got in there through some uh, through the water uh system you know whether it was a creek or whatever huh. at some point in time uh, so back going back to the 60s and 70s when these first started appearing in the united states 
I doubt those were triploids. They're probably just dumping grass carp into these aquatic uh, environments. Yeah, everything you find down in Mississippi drainage that had come back from that history you're talking about are likely diploid and reproducing on their own. Uh-huh. Um, our reservoirs in Texas, in, in Texas, by and large, do we still have, I mean, uh, reproduced? There are diploid fish in Texas, I'm pretty sure, on the east in the east side, of, uh, northeast side of the state, uh-huh. either through the movement, um, you know, coming into Red River, whatever, or through through old, before the rules were put in place about the triploid grass card, there might have been some that were stocked that and, were diploid. They're not spread now. It's been quite a few decades now where we... Um, well, we actually only work with triploid fish by law. Okay, that's fascinating. I had, I really had no idea. I just know that they're everywhere. How they got there uh, was something that I was interested in, in finding out, though, uh, which you've done a great job uh, breaking that down for us. What about, say, I've got a, say, I've got a pond, or I've, I own a golf course, and I've got uh-huh. vegetation, uh, yeah. you know, just, just going mm-hmm. wild. Can I call Texas Parks and Wildlife and you come work with me uh, to, with possibly using uh, triploid grass carp as a as a uh, fix for my problem? So for the private uh, for the private owners for for pond or tank owners, depending what you like to call it, um, that's an option that you could actually use. Um, we as a Parks and Wildlife's role in the grass carp uh, permitting. It, it is that that's all it is it's permitting mm-hmm. because we want to make sure that these grass carp don't get into sensitive areas or waters that are public that don't need any any grass carp in them and uh, so when somebody with a say a five acre retention pond in their property wants to control it with grass carp they call the the local district biologist and talk about the conditions and there's uh, an inspection done so the biologist will see what what the conditions are. If if the water body is connected to a creek or something where if they escape, they could get into areas that we don't want them in. And uh, we could recommend barriers to be put up so fish don't escape. And uh, or if it's just a landlocked you know uh, pond that goes nowhere, you probably won't require a a barrier so the fish would you know would remain in there. And uh, we would permit based on the need so, and the size of the pond. So the owner, once they get the permit, say we permit for 10 fish, and the, perm, and, the and the owner probably only needs five to control, he could stock five and keep the other five in the pocket until the, those the first fish die or your plant problem comes back. Yeah. Okay. So all we do is provide a permit for them to purchase the fish. Okay. And... Uh, we will give them advice as well as a biologist. Sometimes they'll have a with algae or something that their carp won't likely fix. So we 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 recommend against the grass carp, and uh, and maybe give them some other options of control. Mm-hmm. But we don't we don't apply the treatments. We don't you know we just basically permit the carp and make recommendations based on what their their goals are for the water. So yes, here you do have a problem. Here's your permit for your ten carp, or if you've got a bigger, res- you know, small lake or whatever on your place, here's your permit for your twenty or thirty or whatever. Uh, that's yeah. what you guys. That's your role in that situation. That's our role. Okay. Um, we have other roles with public waters. We have other roles too. For example, Lake Austin, the famous one that's basically been in, uh, I've been dealing with for for the last few years, is you know, 
the city of Austin, LCRA, are the controlling authorities out there, and they have priorities. Those lakes are are built for several reasons, you know, well, passing water through, flood control, um, you know. Mm-hmm. Lake Austin is a, it's an, it's a water source for drinking water. A lot of things going on that, you know, when the city of Austin and uh, LCRA, they generate uh, they generate electricity through the Tom Miller Dam. Hydrilla causes a huge issue for those priorities. Those lakes are built for those reasons. They're not built for fishing. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is one thing I like to tell you that maybe people know. Lakes aren't built for fishing. We love to fish in lakes because it's the best place to go fish. But And we do everything possible to make fishing better at those lakes. But at the end, those lakes are built for, for other reasons. And when the controlling authorities say our main priorities are at risk, Sometimes they're going to make decisions to take care of those priorities, and fishing takes a back seat. As much as we will, we tell them, you know, we need to keep a balance. Sometimes that's that's not possible, you know, because flooding or or whatever reason, uh, safety, whatever, you know, uh, it takes a precedence. Mm-hmm. So all we can do is um, work with those authorities to give them the best advice and if they're receptive it's great for fishermen but sometimes we we lose a battle or two so that's what's happened in the past with uh with austin conroe and things like that well know. let me ask you this because obviously bow fishing is huge um and it just keeps gaining popularity obviously grass carp are one of the primary targets for bow fishermen and so what goes through your mind when you see a photo of a couple guys with their bow fishing boat and a pile of 30 triploid grass carp? I mean, are those, well, I, I'm assuming that's just wasted money by Texas. If these fish aren't reproducing, uh, then, mm-hmm. then it seems like you've just, now you got to go back in and restock those. <laughs> if there's a permit that's active for grass carp in any public water, those fish are protected automatically. Nobody should be shooting them. Mm-hmm. I mean, the case in Lake Austin, for example, is a special case where once vegetation was, was ripped out or eaten, um, they had really done their job. They no longer need to work the job. So we could actually lift the permit off, which is what we did intentionally. So bow anglers could go in and, or whatever angler wanted to take them out could take them out and help us regain, you know, relieve the, the, the grazing pressure that these fish produced on the lake and try to minimize that so the vegetation can come back on its own. Mm-hmm. So that's where we are right now. So you ask me how I feel when I see a, a bunch of grass carp that were taken from, you know, I say if it was Lake Austin, I'll be happy because <laughs> they, those fish need to come out. Now, if it's a lake that is under a permit, it would be illegal. And I wouldn't be happy about that because they're doing a job. So, yeah. Um, yeah. You will know what bow lakes are protected because um, they're usually they're, there's a regulation for them yeah. in place. You know, in the reg book, if there's a lake that's you know like when Lake Lawson was permitted, the rules were posted that you know if you catch a grass carp, you must release it. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's basically a tool, so they they're protected at that point. But um, and, and lakes that are like, for example, Texoma is on that on the Red River, so Red River is part of the Mississippi drainage. Those fish are probably been spreading there for for decades and yeah yeah. so yeah chances are they're not yeah nobody's pulling vegetation in 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 texoma i'm pretty sure so you know well anyway uh fascinating stuff certainly enjoyed the conversation 
And, uh, Marco, I, I look forward to our next visit. I appreciate all that you guys do within our inland fisheries. Like, i got to go back to what you said, that these lakes weren't created for fishing. That's not their primary reason for existence. But you guys do everything that you can to, uh, to make them as angler-friendly as possible, and, and we certainly appreciate that. And we try our best, and it's something that a lot of people don't know, but, you know, we, we fight for our anglers, and we fight for what our anglers want and um it and sometimes it's misinterpreted you know when things don't go the right way it's all you know and that's fine because it, it all it takes is a phone call or, or people like you that are spread the word out make people understand what goes on mm-hmm. but yeah we always are going to fight for the best fishing opportunities for anglers we will we will work together with controlling authorities to make sure that the best a balance is reached so their priorities and our priorities are met and we always have good fishing in Texas. As you know, it's a it's a it's a billion dollar, multi billion dollar industry. We don't wanna we don't wanna let that fall. So we want fishing to stay in Texas forever. So well, and as long as you guys are doing a good job, we'll uh, we'll keep paying your salary uh, by, by, by buying those fishing <laughs> licenses. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like managing a baseball game, is what I say. Sometimes you win a game, sometimes you don't. Yeah. Hopefully, you win more than you lose. So. Right um, that's all we could do, and hopefully the anglers catch fish. My my reward is seeing those pictures with people holding fish and stuff. As long as that's going on, I know that good management is going on. What is your favorite thing to fish for? You know what? Um, since I've been in Texas here, uh, my, my Guadalupe bass has been my favorite fish to, 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 to pursue in rivers. But um, overall, I mean, I used to live in Florida, and I used to fish for those uh, butterfly peacocks down in the South Florida canals. Oh, yeah. And to me, that's my personal favorite. But there's been a lot of fish I haven't caught yet, so that could change any minute if I get into a new fish that I think, okay, this is even better. I like river fishing. I like small water fishing. So anything that gives me a good fight in a small water current or whatever, I'll I'll try to pursue. Yeah, I've got the the Guadalupe bass on a fly rod is one that's on my bucket list, so. I've tried a couple times hey, and I've caught them. Come on uh, up to yeah, come on up to Austin. They're, they're right here, the Colorado River below Austin, where the yeah. big ones are, and and yes, there's a ton of fly fishing going on there. It's almost it's almost unfair how how easy it is to catch Guadalupe bass <laughs> at times. Well, right on, my my Good friend. Fish. Well, hey Marco, thanks again. I, I certainly appreciate it. Anytime, man. Good talking to you. Likewise, brother. There he goes, Texas Parks and Wildlife Inland Fisheries District biologist Marco De Jesus. Uh, always great visiting with him and uh, just something a little different for you today. Uh, something that, you know, we see these fish all the time and we know that they're invasive. So, and I do want to say thanks to one of our listeners. He actually sparked the idea uh, for that conversation. Um, but it is fascinating to go back and, and take a look at how they got here, why they're here, and uh, if they're really detrimental or, or doing their job. And uh, it seems like if they weren't effective as far as a management tool, then we still, you know, we wouldn't be stocking them uh, 50, nearly 50 years later, over 50 years later. So anyway, uh, that segment of the presentation was brought to you by Lone Star Beer. The next time you're out carping, (laughs) and I do like it. I mean, uh, sight casting in shallow water to carp, it's like, four man's red fishing to be honest um, but next time you're out there once you get off the water celebrate with an ice cold Lone Star Beer Lone Star Beer the national beer of Texas 
Up next, we'll be joined by my good friend, Luke Sterling. I recently had the pleasure of heading up to Montana to hunt big sky country black bears with Luke, uh, one of the lower 48's most renowned wolf hunters when it comes to big mule deer. Oh my God, y'all should see his walls. Uh, but we'll discuss our hunt and public land hunting etiquette as well. Coming at you next on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Do you have a hog problem at your ranch or deer lease? We have the solution. The System Hog Trap comes in two sizes, 17-foot and 30-foot diameter traps. After you trap the hogs, take the top section off the trap and use it for another feeder site to keep the hogs away from the feeder. The System is both a trap and a deer food plot fence. That way you don't waste your money on just a hog trap. Call 940-391-3669 or visit www.goinfencing.com. That's goinfencing.com. Cable Smith here for Deerview Windows. As a whitetail hunter, nothing is more frustrating than poor visibility in a deer blind. It can flat ruin a hunt. At Deerview Window Company, they manufacture windows solely for the use in deer stand and deer blinds. All of their windows and doors can be custom made to fit your specific openings. Or you can select from standard sizes, from hinged windows to sliding windows and everything in between. Visit DeerviewWindows.com to determine which style window is best for your deer blind. Plus, you'll get a free quote. Deerview Windows, where visibility matters. Have you had the frustration of trying to mount your game camera to a T-post with zip ties or bailing wire, but the first time you check it, find it pointing at the ground? I have. My name is Art Greep with Gunny Art Products. I'm the inventor of T-Mate, the T-post game camera mount. T-Mate is a rugged steel bracket. Just attach your camera to it, slip it over a T-post, and latch it in place. T-Mate will end your zip tie and bailing wire frustration. Order yours today at tpostmount.com. That's tpostmount.com. There's a little Sturgill Simpson bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Cable Smith here with you today. Thank you for dropping by. I certainly do appreciate each and every one of you, whether you're tuned in on one of our radio affiliates or checking out the podcast. I am just glad you're here. Uh, thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris as well, as we are all set to head to the Montana backcountry with my good friend Luke Sterling. But before we do that, this segment of the presentation is proudly brought to you by the company that was keeping me high and dry on that Montana bear hunt. And of course, I'm talking about First Light. And one thing that was a game changer for me, and it sounds so silly to say, hey, a pair of socks really made a huge difference on a hunt. But I'll tell you what, for someone who's had black toe and has had lots of feet issues from let's just say moisture in the mountains over the years, um, it does make a big difference. If your feet go, your hunt is ruined. And I had a pair of wool socks, lightweight, just wool socks. And then I had 
my uh, mountain athlete sock from First Light. And the mountain athlete sock, on the days that I wore it, my feet did not hurt. They were dry because that merino wool nylon blend, it keeps working to wick away that moisture. Keeps your feet dry. It's also a compression sock, so it keeps everything nice and tight in there. I'll tell you what, I wouldn't head into the backcountry without three pairs. Now that I know how effective it is, it's the Mountain Athlete Compression Sock, and you can find it at firstlight.com. All right, uh, well, let's go ahead and jump into our conversation with my friend Luke Sterling. When it comes to hardcore backcountry hunters, I don't know many as hardcore as him. I certainly haven't hunted with anyone as dedicated as Luke Sterling. He is a Montana native, lifelong Montanan, and uh, he's been chasing elk with a bow, backcountry mule deer, and black bear his entire life. Recently found a passion for wolf hunting and has become the lower 48's premier wolf hunter, in my opinion. So Luke invited me up to Montana to hunt black bear with him this spring, and I had the pleasure of heading up there about 10 days ago. And so we'll uh, we'll recap our hunt and then talk some public land hunting ethics as well because we had some folks rub us the wrong way on that trip. Uh, but without further ado, we taped this in Luke's living room surrounded by 180-inch mule deer mounts all taken on public land in the backcountry. So without further ado, here we go. Well, Luke, thanks for having me out, man. It's uh, certainly been a hell of a good time. My, my first time experiencing Montana... Uh, truly exceeded expectations as far as the views and I think Montana threw everything at us from the weather standpoint you know here in the spring but uh it was certainly nice of you to, to have me out yeah thanks for coming out it was a blast you know like we said we've seen some bears and uh it didn't work out on this trip but uh, hopefully maybe next time yeah well and you know we were talking uh, to your lovely wife Tiffany she, she was nice enough to let me stay in the house a couple nights you know once we showered because we uh we did spend two nights out in the brush but uh i asked her if she ever thought it was weird that strangers just show up from all over the the country and you know you guys put them up to go hunting and uh you know my wife prefers to instagram as the online hunters uh, dating app (laughs) so um but yeah so you know we we got kind of been friends we've talked on the phone but had never met and you said hey why don't you come up here and go bear hunting if you want to and yeah I'd never done a spot and stock bear hunt and uh, it was a you know certainly more challenging than sitting in a tree stand in Alberta very challenging waiting for the bears to come to bait which is what I have done yeah you definitely got to put the miles on and you know a lot of glassing goes into it yeah well and and we spent a lot of time behind the glass and and we saw bears every day um, which was cool and for me personally to get to see my first grizzly bear was was pretty awesome yeah that is pretty cool you guys have plenty of them up here. Yeah, we do. We have quite a bit, actually. And, I mean, you've lived here your entire life. Would you say that you have, you're almost 40, You would you say you have more bears now or the same, you know? Grizzly going, bears? Yeah. As far as, oh, yeah, definitely. More? Um, I think they're right on the verge of getting um, put out for some tags here shortly. Yeah, which Wyoming, uh, I think, and Idaho? Wyoming, or, Idaho, I believe. I'm yeah. not sure. I know we're going to have the first yeah. grizzly hunt in the lower 48, I think, uh, this fall. Since the, since the 70s when yep. the grizzly went on the endangered list. Um, and I'm sure Montana will be... Yep. it won't be far behind them. Right behind. So that's pretty cool. Um, when we So, you know, like I said, it's glassing, lots of glassing. We we camped in a couple uh, different spots. 
hit a bunch of areas that you've traditionally have found bears in. And um, we just didn't find the right bears. Yeah, we've seen bears yeah. you know, every oh, yeah. day except for – Beautiful yeah. chocolate one that got my yeah. heart right going. And then when you know it, here come two little fur balls right behind her. Oh, yeah. So – and uh, obviously you, you're not going to shoot a, a sow with cubs. And, and we saw – I think we saw four mature bears. Two of them were sows. Uh, one was uh, probably too small. You know, it wasn't even a four-foot bear. So Yeah, it was a pretty small bear, probably yeah. just a yearling that got weaned off this last spring. So. And then one chocolate one, we don't know if it was a boar or, or sow, but it didn't stay out in the open long enough for us to come up with a plan to, to go after it. Um, and then, you know, we had a lot of rain, you know. Yeah, lots of rain. Yeah, which uh, made things kind of challenging there for a day. Uh, and then our, our last day, I mean, really to see everything um, that – you guys have in this area i mean we walked four miles and half of it was in the snow yeah <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. like you know and it's 80 de- i mean i had a short sleeve shirt on and i'm walking in the snow it's yeah, yeah. crazy you know it's 85 degrees outside uh and that snow melt is it uh, could be kind of cool walking through that stuff but it's it's still I mean, hot. sunburn yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's hot yeah um so traditionally talk about like your background as a bear hunter how old were you when, when you shot your first bear I really didn't get into bear hunting until I was probably well out of high school. I think I shot my first bear when I was mid twenties. Uh huh. You know, you take my recurve, and I've taken numerous bears since then. But you know, it's they're not something that I hunt like hard like I do mule deer and elk and you know animals like that. But yeah, it's definitely uh definitely fun to hunt them. Yeah, and one cool thing, and then I saw it here, uh, the different color varieties because we saw black black bears we saw chocolate and then we saw a little cinnamon cub um in alberta it was either where i was anyway it was pretty much black bear with a chance of like a, a blondish one yeah there's definitely a lot of uh colored face bears here you just never i think i i probably have half and half for black and uh chocolate and you know uh-huh. and then you have that video which is on your instagram of the albino one yeah i seen an albino one few, quite a few years back but that's incredible yeah, i've never seen cool. an albino yeah pure white um Pink eyes, pink nose, pink paws. Yeah. They have a whole nine yards. And you were going to harvest it, but you didn't know if it was on private land. Yep. I had it at 400 yards. I had it, you know, had the video camera rolling, but I just wasn't sure about um, the property. If, if it was, I knew it was close to the boundary, uh-huh. but uh, I ended up passing it up and kind of looked at it a little bit later on some maps and stuff. And this was, this was before like Google was, you know, and before all, all your maps Onyx maps and, and stuff yeah. was, you know, available. And, uh, it ended up being on public land. So. <laughs> but that's how it goes. You know, yeah, you got to yeah. make the right choice. You got to so. make the ethical decision, yep. which we'll, we'll get into in a little bit. Um, now, it, and you don't know what happened to that bear, but you suspect the state came and trapped it and moved it somewhere. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what happened. I've, I heard about it a few times after that. And probably then, took it over to Glacier National Park. Yeah, some, some, zoo, some zoo somewhere probably. Yeah, yeah. right on. Um, last year, your son shot his first animal. It was a bear. Yep. I think it was the last day of the season. Yep. Nice cinnamon colored bear. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Which we, and we actually went to that same spot uh, that where he shot his bear. How old is Jackson? He's uh, eleven right now. Eleven. Already shot his first bear. Yeah, he shot his first bear at ten. That's so, incredible. Yep. Yeah. He seems to be pretty eaten up with the whole thing. Oh yeah. 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 He likes hunting. Just like his old man, uh, which, like I said, you're a couple years older than me, but damn, I had a hard time keeping up with you. They're like a mountain goat up there. <laughs> yeah. This flatlander comes from Texas and. I knew, I knew, like very early on, I was going to be uh, struggling to keep up. Um, we had to cross a, a, a creek that was flowing pretty good, 
and like you went and built a bridge for me to like <laughs> come across. <laughs> I mean, like yeah. very first thing. Yeah. I was like, oh. well, I didn't want you falling in. People can look at those pictures on Instagram. I was my pucker factor was at like a eleven. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Um so as far as the bear hunting goes, like we said, we struck out, but I mean, Montana exceeded expectations for me personally to to come into to big sky country and and to see the vast public land, which Coming from Texas, our state's 98% privately owned. We have public land for basically duck hunting. There's a couple reservoirs you could hunt deer at, you know, archery only. There is a little public hunting opportunity. We've got one national forest. But, I mean, as far as your eyes can see, Montana yeah. is public land. For miles and miles and miles. And it doesn't matter if you want if you want to hunt uh, mule deer, whitetail, elk, yeah. bear. I mean, you name it, you can get a tag as a resident for any of those. Yep. Yeah, uh, you couldn't hunt it all in a lifetime. Any any given spot, you couldn't hunt it all. There's yeah. no way it's impossible. There's it's so insane. Much, so much land out here. Absolutely insane. Um, as far as why I think we had a little more difficulty on our bear hunt, we we basically hunted three and a half days. So I know you were pretty confident that we could kill a bear, get on at least get on a bear and yep. and have a stock, which we we actually never did do that. But I know this was a crazy winter for you guys. Yeah, the snow was uh, twice as deep as normal, and it came off twice as late so yeah. the areas that are out now are areas that are you know should be we should be hunting you know two three weeks ago yeah but you know we may do yeah you all had a, a, a really late winter as far as snowfall yeah yep. um there's still a lot of snow in the high country right yeah now. yeah a lot which we walked through a lot, yeah. quite a bit of it so tell our listeners for people who haven't done spot and stock bear hunting before obviously these bears hibernate once the snow starts to melt and you think some of them are still dinned up under that snow. Yeah, I would imagine they're they're in and out of their dens, but they're mm -hmm. definitely, I'm sure there's a few that Probably are still. Probably still pretty lethargic. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Um, but uh, as far as what you're looking for when you're, the areas that we're glassing, for instance, what kind of terrain are we looking at and why are we focusing there? Well, the things they like to eat in the spring are grass, you know, uh, small plants, vegetation like that. Um South-facing slopes where it gets the sun gets hit hard and steep grades, you know, um, that the steep grade and the sun helps to shed the water off quicker mm -hmm. rather than the flatlands. So that's usually where they'll go to is the south-facing slopes. What elevation were we at most of the time? Um, I would say in between 4,000 and 6,000 feet. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. We, and if we would have, like, say those sows, if they if they didn't have cubs, like, how high up were they? That's another? probably around eight or 9,000. Yeah. And, yeah. like, the deal was if we decide we're going after them, then we're just... Yeah, exactly. There are no trails. You're those bushwhacking are, those mountains, there. Those mountains, yeah. They're, <laughs> <laughs> they're steep and they're big, you know. They're yeah. probably a couple miles up. Yeah, which I got a new, like, uh, found respect for the term bushwhacking on this trip because I told you I've done a lot of, of hunting in New Mexico. I've been backpacking there 15 years and, and hunting it for probably 10 um, but to me, bushwhacking always meant that you just kind of got off of the trail and maybe you went uphill, maybe you went downhill, but you just kind of walked through the woods, you know, and it wasn't, it's not easy. It's just a lot of elevation change. You can get steep very quickly, but there wasn't like bushes hitting me in the face nonstop. <laughs> like, like the first yeah. morning, that's what my experience was like. Yeah. You know, my term for bushwhacking is, you know, you're, you're physically moving <laughs> branches away from your face right. to try to weave through the, yeah. It's my arms it's are a testament to uh, to that because I was wearing short sleeves and I got all kinds of cut up, but yeah. no pain, no gain. Yep, exactly. 
Um, well, okay, let's do this. Let's take a quick break, come back, and, and I want to talk about something that we experienced on our hunt, which I, you know, kind of made me a little disappointed in the hunting community. Um, so we'll go ahead and, and knock out a break, and we'll come back and do that. Sound good? Sounds good, man. Right on. And that segment, by the way, was brought to you by Rustic Reminders Taxidermy. Locations now in Marion and San Antonio, Texas. Josh and Becky Gunther. Yep, they take care of all of my trophy mounts, have been doing so for a long time. And if I'd have gotten a bear in Montana, well, they'd have done that as well. You can find them at gr8mounts.com. They're good people. They answer the phone every time you call, and they deliver great quality with fast turnaround time. gr8mounts.com. We'll be right back with more from our buddy Luke Sterling, recounting our Montana black bear trip. And we'll get into hunting ethics, or lack thereof that we experienced uh, here in just a minute. You're listening to the Lone Star Outdoors Show. But you swear it's not the one Where'd you hide the body? Where'd you get the gun? Where'd you hide the body? Where'd you get the gun? Hey, hey, all you waterfowl junkies out there. Cable here for TX Duck Blinds. Highly durable and highly mobile customized duck blinds built by duck hunters for duck hunters. Each blind is built from solid steel by professional welders and field tested before shipment. A duck season will come and go, but guess what? Your TX Duck Blind is built to last. Customize yours today by calling 817-965-1306. You can also find them at texasduckblinds.com or check them out on Instagram and Facebook at TX Duck Blinds. Hey guys, Cable here for Chama Chairs. The Chama Chair is the all-terrain swivel chair designed out of necessity because the owners were tired of poor-performing hunting chairs. The Chama weighs less than 8 pounds, silently swivels 360 degrees, converts to a stool, has tear-resistant fabric, telescoping legs, and pivoting duck feet. The carrying bag even has accessory pockets and gun and bow straps. Chama Chairs is revolutionizing the hunting chair. It's literally making all other hunting chairs obsolete. And you can find them at chamachairs.com. Hey, North Texas sports fans. This is Brian Spagnola, general manager of Texas Motor Cars in Addison. My family's been in the car business for over 50 years, and I want to show you the difference in buying from a family-owned and operated business. TexasMotorCars.com is an awesome website that lets you do virtually all of your shopping online. We have a professional photographer that takes amazing photos, and we give you all the information that you'll need up front. You can even find out how much we will give you for your trade-in before you ever come in. I take pride in the fact you can come in, choose a car, and be out in less than an hour. We have financing rates starting at 1.79% on pre-owned vehicles and can help almost anybody. Please do yourself a favor. If you're in the market for a pre-owned vehicle of any kind, give us a shot. Let me show you how easy buying a vehicle should be. Visit TexasMotorCars.com or come visit our 20,000-square-foot indoor showroom in Addison. Again, visit TexasMotorCars.com or call us at 1-888-9-TX-MOTORS. Hi, this is professional bass angler Kelly Jordan, and if I'm not on the lake or in the deer stand, there's a good chance I'll be listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. My Nashville friends, they think I'm strange to make my home out on the range. They think it's nothing but a God-forsaken land. Why don't you bring your guitar and family move on down to Tennessee? Well, I just smile because they don't understand. The late great Chris Ledoux, Western Skies, bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by 
Dallas Safari Club. Capel Smith here with you today. Oh man, Chris Ledoux, he's one of the few who I regret that I never had the chance to interview. Uh, clearly a Hall of Fame rodeo champion and a passionate outdoorsman as well. Gone way too soon, um, but his music lives on regardless. Uh, we are visiting with our buddy Luke Sterling, recounting our uh, Montana black bear hunt from a few days ago. But before we jump back into that, this segment brought to you by Overstocks and Bargains, your discount ammo supplier. What they did, and I've told you guys and gals this, uh, they went up and bought all the ammunition from Gander Mountain when they went out of business. And now they're offering it to you and I at deeply discounted prices. You can find them at overstocksandbargains.com. Use my promo code LONESTAR and you'll save 10% off your entire ammo order. Uh, all right, well, let's get back into it here with our friend Luke Sterling. And we're going to discuss public land hunting ethics at this point, uh, something that I think everyone needs to be cognizant of. And I'll break it down like this. Uh, our situation, yes, we're hunting in, I mean, millions and millions of miles of Montana wilderness. They're literally are access points everywhere. Uh, I mean, by access point, I mean, you just drive to the end of a road and where it dead ends, you walk into the wilderness. Uh, but it's not like there's trails at these places. Uh, there's no trail. It's not even a trailhead. It's just there's a cul-de-sac and you just walk into the mountains. And, and actually, you don't even have to have a, a road dead end. You can just pull off on the side of any road and walk into the damn mountains and start hunting. It's it's mind-boggling for us flatlanders uh, just public land as far as the eye can see, no fences, no nothing. You just walk in and do whatever you want, really. So as far as coming in on top of someone, there's no excuse for it because there's opportunity everywhere. It was mind-boggling um, to see the, the blatant disrespect that we encountered on our hunt, and we'll get into it now with our friend Luke Sterling. Well, Luke... Um, let's get right, right into it, man. On, on the last day of our hunt, uh, we encountered something that it happens all too often. And I think it's happening more and more frequently. And as far as people coming in behind you when you're hunting, I don't think it was as common 15, 20 years ago. No, absolutely not. Um, I didn't really see that, uh, up until the last, the last five, five years or so. It's really been hitting a lot more. Do you think that it's, a direct result of more hunters or just people not having a, a good foundation as far as uh, hunting ethics are concerned? Um, maybe a little of both, but definitely the ethics part. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you, well, get, you get a lot of, a lot of different guys coming in from different States and stuff, you know? Uh -huh. So, yeah. Well, my first thing that I ever hunted was ducks. That's what got me, you know, excited about hunting. I could do it with my dog. That's what I fell in love with. The first time my dog fetched a mallard duck up, I was hooked. And then, you know, now I'm here in Montana bear hunting with you. Um, but that was on public land. And so I've, you know, I've done the public land song and dance for years and years and years. And there were times, you know, you park at an access point, And if you're the first one there and there's only one good spot, well, then you got it. You know, and if, if it's me personally, and I drive up and there's already a truck there. I go to the next, my second favorite exactly. spot, Yeah, you know. Uh, but there are, there have been plenty of times when someone just comes in on you and duck hunting is a little different because you could, you could be nice and say, well, Hey, there's not enough room here for both of us. You could just hunt with me, yeah. you know, or, you know, if you've already got five or six guys, you just say, Hey, look, you need to hit the road, Jack. That's not what happened on our hunt though, because 
like we said, Montana is just millions and millions of acres. You can park on the side of any road and just walk and start hunting. There's roads, there's trails, there's mountains everywhere. You can go anywhere. Yeah, and we put all the work in. We get there at 3 o'clock, this one uh, trailhead, and we walk in like four miles. It took us probably an hour and a half uphill. Yep. And our whole purpose was to get there so we could have a good vantage point and glass these four slides. Which is a you know an area well it's a place that you've hunted a lot yep um, had success there and and you thought that gave us our best option to see bears on the last day we get there and get set up and an hour later here comes some lazy guys you know coming in at the last minute and they hunt right underneath us yep three of them and a dog yep and came, it's just like came right up the trail right walked right by my truck and you know right by your truck yep. they parked right there saw they your truck blocked my truck off yeah way. Just absolutely like me in there. no uh, no concern for their fellow hunter. Yeah. Which, like we said, you just drive up another mile and you can just walk, you know, walk wherever you want. Um, so that was pretty frustrating. Uh, we actually saw two bears, a black bear and a grizzly. I guarantee you they didn't see them. No. Because they couldn't that from where they was were. probably the first guy walked by it maybe 20, 30 yards. And he had no idea. Maybe. And no we're idea lo- looking through the spotting scope at this jack wagon about to get possibly mauled by a grizzly bear. He has no idea it's there. Nope. And they're hunting them all wrong. Um, coming up from the bottom. Yeah, you know. the sun was going, you know, hitting the hillside hard. Thermals were going straight up, and they were straight above them. Which basically ruined our hunt because the bears, you know. Well, I mean, take for instance what that, lo- that little black bear did. I yeah. mean, he was coming down the mountain, and it was, what, 15, 20 minutes after that guy left? Yeah. And, and still smelt his wind. And boogied and on out. And took off, turned around, went up, back up where yeah. he came from. I don't, I don't know. I, I want to encourage people to to really think about that, to have some level of courtesy for their fellow hunter. Um, and whether it's duck hunting or, or bear hunting or, or anything else, uh, it's just it's not necessary. It, it kind of, uh, I don't know, it leaves a bad taste in my mouth when I see other people do that. Um, so if, if you are the guy that's second to the trailhead or to the access point on your favorite reservoir for duck hunting or, or whatever the case, you know, got to get there early <laughs> yeah i mean you just pick you got, a new spot or like you said put the time in and get there early yeah i mean yeah. there's plenty of spots definitely especially around here yeah so have you actually seen have you um, that's happened to you and it's becoming more and more uh, common so has anyone ever shot an animal right out from under you yeah i've i've not that they knew i was there right but they were which these guys had no idea we they were had no idea where we were at yeah. um which I've, is even more that, that pisses me off even more because from a like a danger standpoint yeah, you have to wear hunter orange, but I mean, they have no idea w- where we are, who we are. They know we probably have guns, and and they're totally comfortable with just walking in like that. Yeah, I would not be. I don't want to be anywhere near another hunter with a gun. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I just for me, it's just something I would never do. I mean, yeah. Like I said, I if I see someone parked at a trailhead or a gate, and I know where they're hunting um, in an area, I'm not going to go in behind them. Absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. That's just the way it is. Well, and. And again, for me, like, I don't want to hunt behind someone else. If they assume that we took the lazy way and just walked in the road, well, then they're still hunting right behind us. Yeah. Stuff that we've already hunted. Yeah, you know? exactly. Uh, just doesn't make any sense. So, um, I don't know. Personally, I want those guys in the woods because I want as many hunters out there as possible. It's more It's more hunting dollars, you know, license sales. They're buying bullets. Uh, the, those Pittman-Robertson tax dollars are still being put back into hunting and conservation. And ultimately, if they're hunters, then they're on our side. So I want them in the woods. I just want them to have respect for other people other in the hunters. woods. Yep. Yeah. 
Um, I don't think it's uh, it's too much to ask. So, I don't know, maybe one person out there that's listening is, has uh, walked in on someone else, and this will make them think twice about it. Yep. Exactly. So and and I and I'm not I'm not innocent. The first year that I duck hunted, I didn't know my head from my rear end. I didn't even know that was rude. To be honest with you, yeah. You know, and, and that could be what it is. Maybe just a little bit uneducated. You yeah, know? yeah. I don't know. But still, the guy almost blocking yeah. you in was a <laughs> move. <laughs> that was very yeah. That was very odd. Yeah. Like, uh, what happens if we would have got out and you know couldn't like squeak by him? You know. Yeah. Like, what are we yeah. supposed to do? Wait for him to get out so we can. If I'd have had a pen and paper, I would have left a note on their car. We'll put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, man, uh, it was truly an awesome trip. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you inviting me out. Yeah, you bet. Up here to Montana. It's one of those places that's always been on my bucket list to hunt for what, whatever it is. Name the animal. I didn't, that was really of little significance. I just wanted to come here and hunt and, yep. and see what uh, Montana was all about. And uh, we accomplished that goal. There's no doubt about it. If you want to... Uh, you know, plug your Instagram page because you've got a lot of followers and uh, you're very well respected as far as a, a wolf hunter and backcountry mule deer hunter. I mean, we're sitting in your living room right now and I don't know how many 180 inch mule deer are in here, but I, probably four or five. Yeah. Yeah, there's a few in here. <laughs> yeah. So tell us uh, where folks can follow along in your adventures. Uh, it's at Sterling's Dream Outdoors, um, Facebook, uh, Instagram, of course, and uh, YouTube. And you film all your hunts? I film all my own, well, pretty much all my own hunts. I have, you know, I've had buddies and stuff that help out too along the way, but most most all my wolf hunts and most of the deer hunts are all self-filmed. Awesome, man. Yeah. Awesome. Well, good stuff. Thanks again for having me. I look forward to uh, our next adventure together. Absolutely. Thanks you for coming out. Come on down to Texas and whack some of these hogs. Yeah, I'd love to. All right. There he goes, our good friend, Luke Sterling of Sterling's Extreme Outdoors. Uh, Luke, by the way, not a guide. Uh, just a friend, a uh, a friend off that social media hunting dating app known as Instagram that many of y'all are on as well. <laughs> but uh, a good guy, great family, and just goes to show you that this outdoor community that we all love and are part of, this is the greatest group of people on the face of God's green earth. To invite a total stranger uh, up to your part of the country and even let them stay in your house a couple days. I mean, it's salt of the earth, folks. And uh, I'm proud to be a part of it. So that segment of the presentation, by the way, brought to you by Rudy's True Texas-style barbecue. Uh, unfortunately, just looking at the clock here, my least favorite time of every week. We've got to go. Got to get out of here. Flat out of time. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to uh, Luke Sterling as well as our other guest, uh, Marco De Jesus of Texas Parks and Wildlife's Inland Fisheries Division. Uh, thanks to each and every one of you guys and gals for tuning in. Uh, we wouldn't have a show if y'all weren't listening, and that fact is not lost on me. So thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. We will do it again, same time, same place, next week. Until then, I'm Cable Smith saying y'all have a great week in the outdoors. My pride intact, but you set my heart on.